It's that time of year again where, you know, pumpkins are getting tossed into the yard waste bin and we're pulling out all the Christmas decorations from the deepest recesses of the attic or garage, right? And how many people are got their house all festive looking now? All right, a few of you. How many still have to do something? Still, okay. How many of you are like, I'm just curious, like as soon as it hits like November, you're like, we're getting Christmas going. Okay, a few of you, yeah, diehards, okay. I like it, that's good. It's a, it's a great time of year, uh, and it's an exciting time of year because it's a time for us to really come and focus in on Christ's first coming, his birth, and, and so over the next few weeks here at Riverside, we want to take some time to do just that and to focus on this thrill of hope that we have, and that's really, you know, what this season really depicts for us. It's interesting, however, that at the time of Christ's first arrival, you know, it was anything but a real exciting or, you know, a, a time of anticipation. It was kind of a very dark time. It was a time where, you know, God had not spoken to man and, and through prophets, you know, in some few hundred years. And so it was a time where there wasn't a lot of expectation and anticipation for something exciting to come. It was quite a dark and dreary time. And that's seen in the very song where this line is from. The song, O Holy Night, says, O Holy Night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of the dear Savior's birth. But notice, long lay the world in sin and error pining. Not a very hopeful situation, right? But notice, till, until he, Jesus, appeared and the soul felt its worth, a thrill of hope now, the weary soul rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. See, that thrill of hope came from the reality that things were going to be different now. There was a change coming, yes. There was a change coming. And you know that when things are going to change, it, it brings hope. It, it brings hope to kind of continue on, to, to keep moving forward because things are about to get better. Now, we talked a bit about that a couple weeks ago in 1 Corinthians 15. In chapter 15, verse 51, we read, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So we understand there, Paul's saying, listen, we don't see all things as they're going to be, but we know that there's coming a time when, when we ourselves are going to be changed. This, this mortal, this, this corruption is going to be changed into that which is going to be incorruptible and immortal. How many people are looking forward to that change happening? <clears throat> Receiving our new bodies that are going to be fit for the heavens. And it causes us then to be those that continue on to, to persevere and to be uh, you know, persisting on despite what we might experience around us because we know that this is not it. There's better things to come. In fact, that's how Paul concludes that chapter in chapter 15 when he writes in verse 58, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. That's how we should be as believers, not walking around, you know, heavy hands, draped down and just kind of in a, in a gloomy kind of attitude, we have a thrill of hope. Hope, you see, breeds excitement. 
doesn't it? Doesn't hope breed excitement? Have you ever come home and maybe you got young ones at home, or you come home to your little kids and I've got a surprise for you, or it's a loved one, you say, I've got a surprise. And what happens? They're not sitting back going, oh, whatever, what's for dinner? They're like, really? You got a surprise? They start hopping around with excitement and anticipation. They know that something good is coming that's linked to that idea of a surprise. They start having this anticipation that something's happening. That's what true hope looks like. Young ones just start hopping around. When, when can we see it? When can we have it? And it's not a wishful thinking or a rolling of the dice. It's a confident expectation that something good <clears throat> is coming. The announcement of a surprise brings expectation of something good. Nobody, you know, nobody uses that word in kind of a negative sense, right? Nobody's coming home saying, I've got a surprise for you. What is it? Just got laid off from work. We're not able to go on vacation this year. <clears throat> That's not a good surprise. It's like, why are you using that word surprise for that? That doesn't fit. Got me all worked up for nothing. Just crushed now. But you see, in the same way, <coughs> excuse me, fighting a cold here. But the same way, when we use that word hope biblically, we're not speaking of wishful thinking or a hope that something happens. We're speaking of a confident expectation. And it should cause us to be bouncing around with exuberance at the reality of what is to come. That's why Paul uses that word, you know, abounding in the work of the Lord. It's like, take her hopping around. You're just, you're just filled with joy and excitement to continue on because you know what the Lord has in store. Now, we understand that the things we see around us don't always give us cause to be filled with hope. We can look around at things that are going on in the world and be more inclined to act like Eeyore and not Tigger, right? Just kind of depressed and discouraged. But this is why looking back at Christ's first advent is such a good exercise for us because it reminds us of how God loves to bring light into the, the darkest of days. It's to remind us of the hope that we have that as Jesus came into this world the first time, so he's going to be coming back a second time in like manner to redeem the world. And it's reason to not just have hope, but to have a, a thrill of hope. To see and know that God is not done, that God has more to come. And this is not just a feeling of kind of, you know, getting by or just kind of holding on and uh, doing your best until the end. No, it's about thriving because we know what Jesus has already done and we understand there's more to come so that we can have this thrill of hope and excitement in our lives and with each passing day we can be living with anticipation and joy so we're going to look back at this old testament passage in micah chapter 5 and and i pray it kind of reminds us of the situation and circumstances people were in in this day and the hope that can be found in seemingly hopeless situations. So we read there in Micah 5, starting in verse 1. It says, Now <clears throat> gather yourself in troops, O daughter of troops. He has laid siege against us. They will strike the judge of Israel with a rod on the cheek. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old from everlasting. Now, this is an amazing prophetic passage that certainly has implications with the Christmas story, doesn't it? The background, however, <clears throat> was anything 
but Christmas cheer. See, Micah is prophesying to, to Israel of an impending invasion. He's looking ahead to a, a day when the Babylonians are going to lay siege to the city of Jerusalem. And, and, and just the, the idea of the Babylonians coming against them would have just filled the people with fear. And now to think about having the siege laid around them where all things would be stopped from coming into the city, nothing would be going back out of the city, the people would be trapped, food sources would be cut off, water would be cut off, and they'd begin to die a very slow, painful death. Many people would just take their lives rather than fall prey to those kinds of conditions or fall prey to the hands of the Babylonians. So it was a very dire situation for the people of Israel. And, and Micah is writing to reveal, man, this is the state that they have found themselves in now. Micah reveals it's not going to go well for them. Their leader is going to be struck on the cheek, kind of a sign of, uh, of humiliation, but more so a sign of defeat against the people. But then Micah does something amazingly. And between verses 1 to 2, he skips ahead a few hundred years. When he begins to mention Bethlehem Ephrathah. And that's interesting because Bethlehem is a very insignificant town. It's a town that gets lost in the shuffle. It's little, it says, among the thousands of Judah. Don't you just hate it when little things are overlooked? I do. I just, <clears throat> looking for some sympathy, but that's overlooked as well. That's fine. But we'll move on. That the town of Bethlehem is little among the thousands of Judah. It's not even mentioned. In, in Joshua chapter 15, when the, the people go into the land and all the towns are allotted to the various tribes, a hundred towns are allotted to the tribe of Judah, but Bethlehem is even mentioned. Because it's just kind of like, ah, we won't even count that in the list of towns for Judah because it's just so small and insignificant. That's how Bethlehem is. It's, it's overlooked. But you see, Micah takes us from the dark days of siege and captivity and humiliation to speak now of the coming ruler who will liberate God's people from the oppressor. He speaks now of the place and the purpose and the preeminence of his birth, of this ruler's birth. So let's look at that here, the place of his birth. Let's look at, at this. Now, we already saw that Bethlehem is the town which was prophesied where King Jesus' birth would take place. And that's amazing, isn't it? Because if you're kind of drawing this up, you would not think that God would choose a place like Bethlehem for the arrival of the Messiah, the promised one, the one that all the Old Testament scriptures have been pointing to and looking to, you would not think Bethlehem seems like a reasonable place to bring forth the deliverer, the ruler, the Messiah into this world. You, you would think, why not like Rome? Rome's the, the political center of the day. Surely, let's, let's have Jesus born in Rome to kind of really overthrow and, and reveal Human governments are now gone, and we have one true government in Jesus, right? You think, why not Rome? Or maybe Athens, which is the intellectual center of the day. Maybe see God's wisdom just, again, confound the wisdom of the world, right? And just overthrow all that. Or, or why not Jerusalem, which is the religious center of the day? Jesus being the one true way to the Father, why not have him come and be born in Jerusalem is kind of a, a sign that there's no other way. It's only found in Jesus. But no, in God's wisdom, he allows Jesus to be born in this small, overlooked town. And for the city of Bethlehem to be the town that brings about a great blessing. And you see, all this reminds us that God does not look to outward appearances. 
God isn't looking to work through the mighty, the highly esteemed, the prestigious, the tall. He works through <laughs> ordinary and humble means. The very things that may seem unimpressive to you can take on greater might and worth when we allow Jesus to come in and fill every area and for Jesus to be in the picture. He changes things, and that's what we're talking about here. We read in, in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 27 to 29, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty, and the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen, and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. So Micah 5, 2 here is pointing to something powerful that is going to take place in Bethlehem. Something that nobody would be expecting. This small overlooked village is where national hope of deliverance lies. And I love that. Because I think it speaks so profoundly to us and perhaps to your situation. Maybe there's things in your life that seem like they're just insignificant to be of any worth. Maybe you're feeling today like God can't really work in your situation. Well, Micah 5.2 speaks in our present feelings of discouragement or perhaps dismay to reveal that God can flip the script and bring something so wonderful and powerful out of seemingly nothing. Don't overlook what you have to offer to God. Don't dismiss what God might want to do in your life because you feel like uh, it just doesn't seem like anything good can come out of this. God is greater, and God has the ability to do something unexpected and profoundly powerful out of something that might seem insignificant or small. And I love how <clears throat> um, Micah 5.2 here Micah attaches the term Ephratha to Bethlehem, which is interesting. Ephratha is the, the name for Bethlehem that was used previously and then later just became kind of known as Bethlehem. But what's interesting is Ephratha stands out here, and Ephratha means fruitful. And I think the application for us is so wonderful, according to what we're discussing, because there are situations in our lives that I think we can oftentimes write off as just desolate, dry. There's, there's no good or there's no life that can come of that. But again, when we bring God into the equation, when we allow God to begin to have his way, and he brings fruitfulness out of that which was once desolate, out of those things that were once perhaps dismissed, God wants to bring life and fruitfulness out of it. And it's seen here, in this small little town, Bethlehem, Ephratha. So we've seen, <clears throat> first of all, the place of his birth. Let's secondly look at the purpose of his birth. All right. So it says there, again, Looking at Micah 5, 2, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler. I love that. The one to be ruler in Israel. So Micah is looking at a very specific 
one, one that's been spoken of, one that's been prophesied of, one that is the one they're looking to, the Messiah, who's going to be ruler in Israel. And that's why Jesus came, is he came to be not just the ruler of Israel, but to be the ruler of all, for the whole world to come under that reign and rule of Jesus. See, God was giving hope to his people of a future day when their Messiah would come and bring deliverance and the rule of God. He says in verse 1, first of all, that their judge that they have now, man, he's going to be humiliated, he's going to be defeated, but one is coming that's going to be the ruler, that's going to stand above the rest and be greater. And his purpose was to come and bring that rule and reign of God. Now, that's interesting because we look at our situation around us and we go, man, it's hard to imagine that that Christ is reigning because it seems like we continue to see, you know, the kingdoms of this world just rising up. It seems like we continue to see evil just continue to to move forward in this world. How is it that Christ is reigning? It, it, It doesn't seem to be a strong reign. Well, it's true, Christ is reigning today, but I want you to understand something. We do not yet see his reign as it's going to be. We, we talked a bit about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 25, saying, For he must reign till he's put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. So he's reigning, but, man, there's still a work of the enemy going on. That's going to come to an end one day. Hebrews, in like manner, says, For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him, but we see Jesus. So Jesus is allowing this work of the enemy to continue to unfold, but ultimately God is carrying on his purposes. And when Christ came the first time, he came to establish that reign and rule of God in the hearts of of men and women he desired for people to come willingly and submit themselves to the rulership of god through jesus christ and for many as believers we are experiencing that reign of jesus that reign of of peace that reign of righteousness in our in our own hearts but understand he's coming again one day when he will put the last enemy under him, death, when all will be wiped out, and that will be a reign uh, of forced righteousness. He's going to come back with a a rod of iron where he's going to strike his enemies. He's giving people an opportunity now, and I want you to catch this, where we can experience that graciousness and love of a Savior, where we come and submit to that lordship of jesus we submit to his reign we allow him to be king in our lives and there's nothing greater than submitting to the kingship of jesus christ today and enjoying his reign enjoying his life that we get to have as our life now going back here what's interesting again when we look at micah calling out bethlehem when we see Bethlehem, what's interesting is Bethlehem means house of bread. Interesting, isn't it? You might go, well, well, why is that interesting? Well, bread is that universal food enjoyed all around the world until all the gluten intolerant people showed up. And you guys have kind of messed that up. But 
we'll show some grace for you here on that. But, but Jesus was born in this place known as House of Bread. And what did he later come and reveal himself as? John 6.35, I'm the bread of life. Right? If anyone hungers, then would come and receive him and be filled. Jesus spoke those words to convey the glorious truth that he came to provide for humanity's greatest need. See, we would never think to go very long without eating, right? We have that natural impulse that just kind of kicks in when we start to feel hungry. It's like, you got to eat. Stomach starts to growl. Give it a few more minutes, we'll start to hear that wave of growling going through the auditorium, I'm sure. But we have that natural impulse that tells us when it's time to eat. There's a need for that. See, food provides for our health, our strength, our energy. And food becomes a good example of what Jesus Christ is to us spiritually. See, he wants to provide us with spiritual health and strength and energy and vitality. Jesus is the bread of life that not only nourishes us today, but provides life forever for us. It's the reason he came, to establish his rule, but for us to taste and see that he is good and to submit to that rule and allow him to be that bread of life that continues to nourish us and to give us life. John 6, says, For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. That's precisely what Jesus did when he left the heavens and he came to this world. That first Christmas was a sign of how, we, uh, of how Jesus would fill our hearts, how he would heal us of our sin and brokenness and nourish us now as our bread of life. And he's coming again, no doubt, as that conquering king where his rule will be enforced on this earth. But we have the joy of receiving him now as a gracious Savior who forgives us of our sin and feeds us through his life, continues to nourish us, gives us that thrill of hope to continue on knowing that we are in him and he in us. Thirdly, we'll look at the preeminence. The preeminence of his birth. Because notice what we see there at the end of Micah 5.2, that his goings forth are from of old and from everlasting. You see, Bethlehem, not the starting point for Jesus. It's not the beginning of his existence. He's from everlasting. He's, he's from of old, a, a, a way of speaking of just, again, from beyond time. Jesus didn't have a start in Bethlehem. He was existent as part of the Trinity, always has been existent, active in creation, always been active in the world. We see him throughout the pages of Old Testament as that angel of the Lord that reveals himself either leading, judging, or comforting his people. Jesus would say in John 8, verse 58, to the, to the Jews, most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. I am, speaking of, again, revealing himself to be very much the same as God, equal with God, eternal. The Jews knew exactly what he was saying when he said that because they picked up stones to stone him. They didn't believe that Jesus was the Son of God. But he's speaking of his eternality. He's from everlasting, and he's come to reign forever. See, Jesus' reign and the work that he came to do is actually so 
wonderfully foreshadowed in the first time that we see Bethlehem mentioned in Scripture. As we're focusing on, on Bethlehem here today, it's interesting that the first time we see Bethlehem mentioned in Scripture is in Genesis 35, verse 16 to 19. And it says there, Then they journeyed from Bethel, and when there, and, and, and when there was but a little distance to go to Ephrath, Rachel labored in childbirth, and she had a hard labor. Now it came to pass when she was in hard labor that the midwife said to her, Do not fear, you will have the son also. And so it was as her soul was departing, for she died, that she called his name Ben-Oni. But his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. So it's interesting that these two names that were given so wonderfully picture and foreshadow for us what Jesus would accomplish. See, Jesus, interestingly, or let me mention these names, Benoni means son of my sorrow, and Benjamin means son of the right hand. See, Jesus would come and be at his first coming that son of sorrow, where he would have laid upon himself the very sin of humanity. He would go to the cross and pay the, the penalty for that sin that you and I owed, that you and I deserved to pay. Jesus came and he placed himself upon that cross willingly. And the Father executed his wrath and judgment upon his son, the son of sorrow that was stricken. Where the, the, the grief and the sorrow of humanity was laid upon him. Jesus took that in our place. He was the son of sorrow. But we know the story. Jesus died and rose again. And he's seated at the right hand of God. It's interesting that Bethlehem is the very place where lambs were kept for temple sacrifices. And Jesus would be born in Bethlehem, surrounded by shepherds, surrounded by lambs being prepared to be sacrificed at the temple. And what would John the Baptist say of Jesus? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus came into the very place where he would be that final sacrifice for sin. All those lambs, oh, they would appease God and, and cover over our sin, but none of those sacrifices could remove sin. Only Jesus could do that as the perfect sacrifice, fully man yet fully God, and able to pay that penalty for our sin. And Bethlehem, again, pictures for us that place of sacrifice. Jesus comes as a son of sorrow to be that final sacrifice, and yet rose again, seated at the right hand of the Father, where he is interceding for us today, and will soon, one day, return in like manner. It's the thrill of hope we have as believers, that as, as dark or as bleak as this world can be, Jesus has come to bring deliverance. And he's done so by laying his life down on the cross, providing the payment for our sin that we could be forgiven and that we could come now and, and taste and see that he is good as that bread of life that gives us life, sustains us. He's seated at the right hand of God to where, again, we have that expectation and anticipation of greater things to come. When he's going to, for the second time, 
come to this world and establish his kingdom and where we'll see his reign complete when all things will be brought under him and it'll be a reign of permanence and perfection. Well, I pray this season we continue to draw inspiration. We continue to focus in on who Jesus is and what he's done and the very reason for this season, the very cause for our celebration to make causes to be filled with joy, anticipation, expectation, have that thrill of hope for all that he's done and all that he continues to do in our lives. Don't discount him. Don't allow the circumstances and situations around you to begin to dictate feelings of dismay or discouragement. Man, look ahead to what Jesus has prepared and to what he's already done and have that thrill of hope today.